They say most of your brain shuts down in cryosleep. All but the primitive side. The animal side. No wonder I'm still awake. Welcome to Now Playing's Riddick Movie Retrospective Series. Yeah, let's cut him loose. Posted by Jacob. All you people are so scared of me. Most days I take that as a compliment. Rock. Is he really that dangerous? Why <laughs> not humans? And Arnie. Well, maybe you just come back and skull fuck you in your sleep. This movie review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Listener discretion is advised. One speed. Mine. If you can't keep up, don't step up. You'll just die. Today we're talking about The Chronicles of Riddick, starring Vin Diesel, Carl Urban, Judy Dench, Fandy Newton, Nick Chinland, Calm Fiore, Alexa Davalos, Keith David, and directed again by David Tui. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Brock. Do you know you grind your teeth at night? Sexy. This is Jacob. <laughs> Never say that to me again. <laughs> Maybe you better pretend you're talking to someone educated in the penal system. Because this is Arnie. Welcome back to our Riddick Retrospective. We are here for our second episode of The Three as we gear up for the new Riddick film coming out this fall. Man, I gotta say, speaking of penal, Vin Diesel was such a cock tease in this period of the <laughs> century. Seriously, in 2000, Pitch Black, a movie I recommended and really seemed to like more in 2000 than I do now. Then 2001, Fast and the Furious. Someday, I hope we get to do that retrospective, but it's a movie I greatly enjoyed. 2002, Triple X, sure, not the greatest movie ever, but a lot of fun. I was so into Vin Diesel. I was a Vin Diesel fan. And then, my God, they're like, Fast and Furious 2. Fuck you. He refused to do it. They had to go Paul Walker. Never a good option. Wasn't he in the first one, Paul Walker? Yeah, but that's all they had for the second one. Yeah, Triple X 2. Wasn't that Ice Cube? Yes. Yeah. And the first Triple X was like a great James Bond movie. If you ever seen that, it's very much like a Bond film. Yeah, it's intended to be a 21st century extreme sport James Bond. And when Vin Diesel was like, fuck you, I'm not going to do sequels, they ended up going Ice Cube. I mean, he was a franchise maker. And then he would just break contracts and refuse to do or make himself available for the sequels. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever youtubed vin diesel but before he made pitch black before he made saving private ryan this guy was doing breakdancing videos when he had hair they're hysterical <laughs> i really suggest you check those out so he got so far up his own asshole that he was killing the franchises he made but i was so excited when i heard he was coming back for my favorite vin diesel series he finally agreed to a sequel chronicles of riddick I have a question for you, Arnie. You mentioned that Pitch Black, there was a novelization. Maybe it's just because of this title, Chronicles. Is this series based on a series of, like, sci-fi books? Yes, they're called Dune. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
well, with Pitch Black, I was thinking Alien. That's definitely the vibe I got when I saw the trailers for Chronicles. David Toohey created this entire universe. And with Pitch Black, like Alien, it felt like a very small universe. It was a bunch of people in space. We had a couple of references to life elsewhere, but it was really narrow in scope, which, from a practicality standpoint, keeps the budget low, but from a storytelling standpoint, keeps the story simple. He went a totally different direction with this one. But no, this is not based on a comic. This is not based on a book series. This is all Tui's creation, though it had grown considerably since the last movie. In addition to the novelization, in anticipation for Chronicles of Riddick, they released a direct-to-video animated feature, Chronicles of Riddick Dark Fury, that takes place right after Pitch Black. It picks up with Iman, Jack, and Vin Diesel on that ship leaving the planet just where we saw them at the end and what happens to them when they reach the space lane. You can read my review of that on the Venganza Media Gazette. I mean, that was kind of the thing to do at the time. They did it with Animatrix. There was a video game, a prequel to Pitch Black, Escape from Butcher Bay, that talks about how Riddick got his eye implants and escaped from prison and was partnering with Johns. I actually was such a fan of this series, I played that game when it came out. It sucked, but I played it. So Riddick had become his own franchise. No, it's not based on anything. It's just its own creation. It's a pretty bold choice to name it Chronicles of Riddick, and as we'll talk about, a pretty bold choice of a direction to go towards, considering what the last movie was doing. I had heard that the movie was disappointing for years before I even saw Pitch Black, and I hadn't seen this movie because of it until watching it for this retrospective and netflix sent me the director's cut which i saw on wikipedia was like 15 minutes longer so after i watched the theatrical cut i was like 15 minutes is such a difference than three which was the extended version of pitch black last time so i said 15 minutes what is in 15 minutes of footage and i was like i was trying to find every which way not to watch it And curiosity got the better of me, and I ended up watching both versions for our talk today. And as the newbie, I watched what Netflix sent me, which is what they sent you, Brock, the director's cut. So I saw that extra 15 minutes. I don't know what the original theatrical cut is like. Arnie will have to tell me. And as the fan, I watched both. I own the Riddick box set, so I have Dark Fury and both cuts of Pitch Black and both cuts of Chronicles of Riddick there. I'd seen the original theatrical cut back in 2004 and was very interested to see the extended cut. I actually started with that thinking, oh, I've seen the theatrical cut in 04. I'll just see the extended one and then going, wait a sec, what the fuck? All right, I got to see that theatrical cut again. So (laughs) I have now seen both for this review. Quite a bit of difference there. Unlike the last one, some of it was MPAA mandated. This was a PG-13 film. You know, when you start spending hundreds of millions of dollars, studios need a way to make that back, and R-rated films turn away a big part of these films' teenage male audience. So even though Tui was making in his mind an R-rated film and made R-rated gore, he knew a lot of that would have to be left on the cutting room floor. The director's cut was mostly his vision. In this case, if you're wanting to see what the director wants you to see, you should be seeing this director's cut. 
his original cut was over three hours in length. Good lord. Well, I could definitely see that with this story as we get into it. I mean, this is quite an epic. There really are chronicles going on in this film. Yeah, they had a huge vision for this. Tui had worked with Vin Diesel before he was Vin Diesel. So, I mean, he made Vin Diesel Vin Diesel, so I think Vin had some trust in him. They were planning a trilogy of Riddick films. Was Tui the director of those breakdancing videos you talked about? <laughs> no, I'm just referring to Pitch oh, Black. Okay. But they wanted Chronicles of Riddick to be the start of a full trilogy of this type. And what they said was the fight with the studio and the 40 cut minutes or 60 cut minutes for the theatrical release was all stuff that would pay off in films two and three. Which, from a storytelling standpoint, is kind of bad filmmaking. I mean, it works if you're Lord of the Rings. It may not work so well if you're Riddick. It works better in a novel than a movie, right? If you're going to put all that stuff in the first movie, you got to tell the audience that and beat it into their brain so they know. Otherwise, people coming into it are just going to be turned off by extraneous stuff. Apparently, that was the studio's thought as well. And we're building up to Riddick, the third part of the series. I'm very curious how the reception of Chronicles of Riddick may have changed their vision. But as recently as 2010, they were still planning on Chronicles of Riddick being the basis of an entire new Riddick mythology. So they really wanted to expand the universe, and God did they. Well, I'm anxious to get a talking about this. Why don't you give us a plot summary? It's been about five years since the events in Pitch Black, and Riddick has been hiding out on planet UV undisturbed. But when a 1.5 million credit bounty is put on his head, his solitude ends. He overpowers bounty hunter Tombs and finds out that the bounty is put on him by Imam, a man who Riddick came close to in the last movie and the only man Riddick trusted. Riddick heads to the planet Hellion Prime to confront Imam and finds out he was summoned as he was a warrior Imam and his cabal needed. Hellion Prime is about to be invaded by the Necromongers who invade and completely assimilate planets. Arion, a fortune-telling elemental, says that a survivor of the planet Furia will overthrow the necromonger Lord Marshall. You following me on all this? Necromonger, Lord Marshall, Furian, elemental? We good? <laughs> Wait, are we doing Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Riddick? I'm, I'm getting very confused here. So to stop the prophecy, the necromongers killed all the Furian children, but Riddick survived. The necromongers invade and kill Imon and capture Riddick. And when Lord Marshall discovers Riddick is a survivor Furian, he tries to have the criminal killed, but Riddick escapes through the intervention of Tombs. Tombs captures Riddick and takes him to the prison planet Crematoria, which is really hot if you didn't get that from the name. I hated that name. We'll, do, we'll get to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're pursued by Lord Marshall's number one commander, Vako. Vako has designs on taking Lord Marshall's throne, egged on by his power-hungry wife, Dame Vako. On Crematoria, Riddick encounters Jack, now a grown-up woman going by the name Kira. She holds Riddick responsible for leaving her on New Mecca, but he saves her from some guard rapists, and they do escape the prison planet, but are stopped by the necromongers who leave Riddick for dead and capture Kira. But Riddick is saved by the necromancer Purifier, himself a Furian. And Riddick goes back to Hellion Prime to find Kira converted. Riddick faces off with the Lord Marshal, who seems invincible, but with his attention taken by Riddick, Dame Vako has her husband betray the Lord. Vako's blade misses, but Riddick's hits home, 
and he kills the Lord Marshal. Kira dies, but in the Necromonger way, you keep what you kill, and Riddick is the leader of the Necromongers. They kneel before him as their ruler, as credits roll. And yeah, you mentioned the names. Oh my god, this felt like 12-year-old. It's a hot planet. Crematoria! They're half dead, and they're warmongers. Necromongers! <laughs> He's full of fury! He's a furion! <laughs> The Necromongers from the Underverse. Like, this is hell. They're demons. Riddick is mad, so he's from Furia. There's a hot planet, so we'll call it Crematoria. Uh, did Tui have his Tui-year-old uh, write this script? <laughs> when they said uh, she's an envoy from the Elemental Race, I went, <laughs> and I quote out loud, Envoy from Elemental Race. Like, I had enough at that point. I'm like, it's enough with the names. I need a crib sheet. And I need to, like, maybe they should have, every time they come on the screen, they should have parentheses, Elemental, parentheses, Furian, parentheses, underneath. Because it was so much information. And remember last time we talked about how they did not hold the audience's hand? They did not hold the audience's hand in the first ten minutes of this movie with all these names and situations and planets and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you re-mentioned Dune. I remember trying to watch that movie, and I swear that prologue seems like it goes on forever, where you're getting planets, and they're selling this spice and that and this and that. Right off the bat, we're hearing about the Underverse and the Necromongers and Lord Marshall, who's half alive and half something out like, ugh. You know what? I enjoy Lord of the Rings, but I am not a fantasy guy. I typically don't go to fantasy movies. I know this is in outer space, but this is a fantasy film. We're getting elementals and magic and religion. This is something so different than what we talked about last week. Yeah, I feel that David Toohey took Dune, the Bible, Macbeth, and put them in a blender and poured out the beverage, and that is Chronicles of Riddick. I mean, we're going to talk about it, but there's a lot of this. You say you're not a fantasy guy, though. I mean, Star Wars is considered space fantasy, and there's a lot of Star Wars, perhaps more prequel than original trilogy, but Star Wars could be seen in Chronicles of Riddick as well, in that it is dense. It doesn't hold your hand. It's going to throw you into this universe with all of these aliens, give you just enough about them, but... Hey, maybe you need to go to the expanded universe to find out more about them. Arnie took exactly what I was about to say. Star Wars, the original Star Wars, not just the prequels, because the prequels you already seen the originals, right? The first Star Wars movie is the exact same thing. But for reasons we all know, that movie captured the imagination of a generation and millions of people after that. This one, I think, really took a page from Star Wars in that sense that it's going to throw you in the middle of it and give you enough information to follow, and it's up to you whether or not you want to make sure you're keeping track of everything. The difference between Star Wars and this one is they drop so many names and so many different places, whereas Star Wars, they throw you in, but it doesn't seem as confusing. They do drop a lot of names in Star Wars. I think we're just too familiar with it. Alderaan and the Senate. I think this is the difference, because I am not, yes, I enjoy Star Wars, I'm not an expanded universe person, I don't get into every single little planet and solar system, and I feel like I have to have my magic cards at the beginning of this film to try to follow along, and this person has plus two hit points, like, there, there's a level you get to that where you've crossed that line, and you know what, you want to say, oh, we're on the Hawk planet, and we're going to the Death Star, okay, I could go along with that, when I start getting UV system .67, there's too many planets, too much mythology, I think, I think if it was more natural, like Star Wars, where we just see it play out, 
I could probably go along with that a lot better, but here it's information overload. This whole prologue about the underverse and the necromongers. It's just, you're telling me too much. Show me. This is a movie. You have pictures. Show me. Don't tell me. Cause I'm trying to figure out what's important here. And when you're telling me all this, me trying to pay attention, I'm assuming this is all important. And that's why you're telling me. And it's just too much. The thing that kills me is this is the sequel to Pitch Black. Pitch Black was so straightforward. It was so simple. It was derivative. We all agreed on that. But it was just junk fun. That's all it ever tried to be. How you go from that to this is almost like I'm going to make a sequel to Frog and Toad Our Friends. And what's it going to be? It's going to be a nine-book epic about how Frog and Toad fight the Lizard King and have this Cain and Abel-like relationship before they finally end up ruling the Toad Kingdom. Can you imagine walking into the theater in 2004, having enjoyed Pitch Black, and then been given this? Yes, as a matter of fact, I get a picture of that very much. Because you did it. I didn't, and I had heard it's not the same kind of thing. I had no idea they were going to go this direction, this deep, but I had heard it was a different kind of genre almost before I had seen it. It's the only thing I knew about this movie. And maybe that little bit of information helped, but I can only imagine if I'm going in there for a sequel to Pitch Black, I would have been, what? Well, the trailers with their giant imagery, their old world, almost Greek play masks were all over the trailer. And if nothing else told me this movie was going to be a bit more cerebral judy dench was in it yes the dame judy dench that blows my mind when she shows up in this film how did they get her they got her for bond why couldn't they get her for riddick it actually (laughs) took a little bit more work vin diesel had to pretty much stalk her and romance her to come to it i think bond has a bit more prestige than riddick brock come on oh i'm the bond fan i know that but in 1995 (laughs) when you get judy dench in a golden eye i mean it kind of blew your mind when once you saw it you're like okay that works it's a british series and she's british and all that kind of stuff but once you do bond once you do a franchise why don't you do another franchise riddick is not the franchise i think you jump to next after bond that seems like a step down a wee step down to me and i think that they brought her in to take this up a step they had this vision and judy dench was going to be an integral character introduced in this first film that would grow in the future films a quick look at the cast list for next week it didn't happen (laughs) but that was the plan yeah and you have people like Lawrence olivier who did this for clash of the titans it's not unheard of jacob but they do this sort of thing that looks to be beneath them well you guys talked about this with peter o'toole and supergirl it's possible it has happened through time The difference is Peter O'Toole was a washed-up drunk, and she was Dame Judi Dench. Okay. He was Lawrence of Arabia. I know, I'm quoting Wild Bunch of Lawrence of Arabia on these these (laughs) series, but... Oh no, this movie's very Lawrence of Arabia, but the difference is Peter O'Toole's career was on the decline, and Judi Dench, this was still very much the height of her latter-day career. So, I knew going in, even the first time I watched this, this was going to be something different. The trailers told me this was not a replay of Pitch Black. But I couldn't even begin to prepare. I don't think anyone can prepare for what you're going to get. And yes, I mentioned Dune. This thing has it written all over it. And as we go through it, I will make many references to Dune. But it's almost like Tui looked at that 1980s flop not even the book but the actual movie that lynch made and goes yeah that's the ticket for riddick 
And I have never heard anything good about the movie of Dune. I mean, I have never seen it because of its reputation. And I like these kind of movies. I like sci-fi movies. And I'm in avoiding that one like The Plague. And you would think that you wouldn't want to make your movie a model of such a notorious flop. It has its fans. Chronicles of Riddick has its fans. I won't get too much into my thoughts on Dune, but yes, it is a notorious mess. And for the same reason, you've got so much going on. You've got so many worlds, so many factions, so much infighting and assassination and a plot about a prophesized chosen one who will go on to rule an empire. The beats of the story are the same. Of course, they're also very biblical. I mean, let's look at this history. In the last movie, you asked about the character cutscenes. There is a cutscene that is only in the director's cut of Pitch Black, where Imam and Riddick are having a conversation about belief in God. And Riddick says, you don't start your life in a trash can with your umbilical cord wrapped around your throat and not believe in God. I just hate the guy. So they're having that religious conversation. Here, they take that one throwaway line about Riddick's beginning and make that the backstory of his entire Furian race. The entire generation of Furians were killed by Lord Marshall, some of whom were strangled with their own umbilical cords because it was prophesied a Furian would take over the Necromongers. Yeah, straight out of the Bible. I believe it was King Herod that went and killed all the oldest males because that was prophesied that that male would rise up and be king, which was Jesus. Yeah, this is straight out of the Bible, what they're doing here. So to take biblical stories and put it in your sci-fi film, that is aspiration. Well, I see it in a lot of sci-fi. You read a lot of sci-fi. I mean, come on. We had The Matrix, which is a big Jesus metaphor. We do see that a lot. I think it's going back to Joseph Campbell and all those archetypes about the hero's journey. And I mean, even Jesus's life fits a lot of that. So I think it's a tricky thing to do. I'd rather you don't do it. I'd rather you just tell a story, not try to pawn off the Bible. It seems kind of like a lazy shortcut at times, unless you're really trying to delve into religion, and maybe this film is. We'll talk about that. There's a lot of religion in this film. There is. I think, though, there's good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. You take the hero's journey, that's the tale that's been told a thousand times. And if you tell it right, you tell the classical hero's journey with all of the beats that Campbell spells out, the refusal of the call and the chosen one moment and all of that, and you do it in a way that even an educated audience who's read Campbell doesn't get it. And then there's the times you just tell stories from the Bible and put it in a sci-fi film. So you take The Matrix, I think that was a better way of doing it. Yeah, there's a lot of Jesus in there, there's the resurrection, but... It's not quite as overt as having a king who kills all the babies. I mean, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to realize that that is taken directly from Herod. I'm really tired of the whole term the chosen one. I'm so tired of a prophecy of a child going to overthrow somebody. And I understand it's been used a thousand times, and it's going to be used a thousand times more, but I'm so tired of it. And I don't think this movie necessarily needs the prophecy part of it. I think it can just be a guy who defeats the other guy. Yeah, when it takes that turn, when you get that reveal that there is a prophecy of a chosen one, oh, eye roll. Yeah, total eye roll, exactly. You're right, Brock. It's been so overused. If you're going to do that, do something new with it. But no, this is, oh, there was one Furian, because they're furious and angry. There's one Furian that you didn't get, and obviously he's the chosen one. Fake me out. Make that, you know, we're going to see the return of Jack in this film. Do something with that character. Do a fake out. Do something. Don't make it so obvious. 
That's a good idea. I'd never thought about that, where Jack could be the last Furian. I really thought it was going there. That would have been a nice twist, because as it's set up, this whole movie is so about making Riddick your hero. And again, you call them Furians and all of that. And he's such this killer that, yeah, it seems like that's what it's set up to do. Again, because of where it's going, I am willing to give it a few things. I'll give it its Herod story. I'll give it its prophecy because, as we'll talk about, there's shades of Macbeth in this. And Macbeth is all about prophecy. You have the three witches who start off that whole thing with the prophecy of what will happen with Macbeth. And so it's ambitious. And I already have accused Tui once of artistic douchebaggery. (laughs) There may be... A dash of artistic douchebaggery in this, but really, artistic douchebaggery is all about the results, not the intent. So he has big intent, and let's go through it. Let's find out how it worked, because we've talked about the big things, but when the movie starts, it's really simple. We've got Vin Diesel on a planet looking like the Unabomber running from nets. Yeah, and a really well-conceived action scene. I like the angles. I like the shots. I love the idea of he's running on top of these looks like a maze or something i thought the entire movie's beginning was a great little action scene and i love the way he looked because riddick in the last movie was bald and all that kind of stuff when he shaved his head and here he's almost rastafarian right with his big locks and his big beard and it was it was kind of cool and a really great way to open the scene when he's on top of the ship the whole thing how he ninjaed those guys when he ghosted him, the terminology, the whole scene was well-conceived and a great way to get you involved in the movie right away. I do like some of his lines. I think this Riddick has a very, well, he actually speaks within the first few minutes of the film. <laughs> but this is much more, I think, of talking about coming up with a new action hero, the new Stallone, the new Schwarzenegger. I feel this is much more of a Schwarzenegger role for Vin Diesel. He has a lot more one-liners. Some of them work, some of them don't. But I do love when Tombs and his crew are trying to take him down. He talks about these three mistakes that they made. You took the job, you came light. Four-man crew, fucking insulting. I love the way he does that line. And then he talks about the empty gun rack. I mean, he does... Not every one-liner is going to work for me here, but there are moments, and here at the beginning, I do like this introduction. I don't buy the wig he's wearing, but I like this introduction of Riddick. (laughs) (laughs) Right there with you, Jacob, on the wig. I also do like the lines, and in the director's cut he actually has more lines Tui actually pulled back some of these good lines there were two more right here in the opening that riddick had and i guess Tui thought they were just Tui much or something but when he's interviewing tombs and he goes you better get the answer to this one right whose ship is this and tombs goes mine in the theatrical cut Riddick goes, wrong answer, then throws him out. And I kind of like that a little better than just throwing him out and implying it's the wrong answer. I did notice quite a few lines that are missing or inserted throughout the movie between the two versions. But it was more like, oh, well, that wasn't there last time as opposed to, well, that definitely wasn't there. The changes in that sense with the dialogue and that way, head-scratching to me. Why they made a choice like the one you just mentioned. It would play both ways fine. To me, why make a change like that? Why even insert it into the theatrical cut with somebody not getting it? The choices with the line insertions or deletions from between the two were just mind-boggling. There's like 20 of those where they throughout the whole time. Which I don't understand why they did that. I think it's one of those things that it gets under the director's skin and they care about it more than we do. But for me, this goes back to 
I talked about it in our Army of Darkness podcast that spring donors would have heard about. The line, good, bad, I'm the guy with the gun. You know, it's a great line that they took out in the director's cut. And so I noticed this because in the theatrical cut, there's two lines that I just go, yeah, you know, they're good fist pump moments, metaphorically speaking. And they took those out. It takes some of the cool away from Vin in the director's cut. Mind if I call you Vin? <laughs> speaking of dialogue, they do repeat a lot of stuff from the last film after he takes Tomb Ship. He puts himself in chrono sleep, and he kind of gives that same speech, I guess, in case this is your first time seeing a Riddick film. I mean, there's no way to know, unless you're a fan of Pitch Black, to know this is connected to Pitch Black. There's not a whole lot that ties it together. I don't know if I need another explanation of chrono sleep here. It's not entitled Pitch Black 2, Pitch Blacker. And, and it's strange it's- also, Jacob, because we had a Judy Dench voiceover to start, and now we're getting a Vin Diesel voiceover. And the first time I watched the movie for this, I'm like, oh my god, is this whole movie going to be different POV voiceovers? I couldn't believe they had two different people doing two different voiceovers so quickly in a movie. You should see Dune if you want to hear some voiceovers. Okay. <laughs> Yet another Dune thing, starting with a female voiceover and then having the internal monologue of the main character. And here with the cryo sleep, Jacob, is the first big difference between the two cuts, where Vin Diesel has a dream or a vision. He has a vision of a Rastafarian Furian girl who will appear four times in this movie. And, oh my god, what a mind fuck of a scene this is i'm sitting here waiting the whole movie this time around for them to explain to me who this chick is yeah apparently i have to wait till parts three or four of the series <laughs> to find out all i get is she is the i guess spirit of furia if you listen to Tui's commentary he actually claims she's a real person who is a survivor living on furia psychically communicating with Riddick about his people and his origin. This is why I thought maybe Jack is going to be that last Fury, and I thought this might be her. You know, there's this thing, you'll remember the crime. Like, yeah, it's all very mysterious, and I don't know if there's a whole lot of payoff. I guess there's not. We never find out who this girl is, right? we got to wait till maybe next week or maybe a fourth film. Of all the things added in the director's cut, anything dealing with this woman and Furia is infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's the biggest difference in the entire movie. All this furious stuff and this first taste we get of it. And I don't know how all this adds up to 15 minutes of extra footage, but if you cut out all the furious stuff and all the nonsense they add on to the characters because of it, because all these dreams and mystic stuff, it probably would only be like five minutes, but it's a major five minutes of difference. And the reason I watched the theatrical cut after watching this director's cut is I'm like, I do not remember this dreadlock chick. Is she anywhere in the theatrical cut because she crazed and no she's not there at all it is completely added in and yeah Tui says this is stuff that will pay off in the sequel in a commentary he did in 2009 where he had a script for the film we're reviewing next week he says it will pay off so I haven't checked I don't know but maybe next week we're going to be talking a lot more about her and be very glad we all saw this director's cut because otherwise we wouldn't know who she was if we'd only seen the theatrical but this is the story Tui really wants to tell is the story of the Furian race but the first time we see it it's through the point of view of telling a story about the people who killed the Furians the Necromongers. 
Is there some other sci-fi franchise that has a name very similar to this that I couldn't put together? Necromonger sounds so much like something else to me. It's generic. It's a play on Necromancer, which I know from Dungeons and Dragons. It's any magic user who can talk to the dead. Yes, that's it. Raise the dead oftentimes. I played with them in World of Warcraft a lot. Okay. I will say this. I do like the visuals of the Necromongers. The ships with the heads. You have, what was it, Lord Marshall with, like, this triple-faced helmet. I at least like the costume design with them and, and the set designs. I, I'm going with that. I, I don't understand why they have heads on their spaceships that shoot out beams that destroy worlds, but... It's a great visual. I like the masks a lot. It is a mixture of ancient Greek mixed with Dune mixed with Guar. And there's that attack of the clone (laughs) shot with the armies and stuff. I thought the visuals overall in this movie were really stunning a lot of the times. And I love the art design. I love the costume design. There's some brilliant work going on here in creating this world. We may not understand everything that's going on, but the visuals throughout the movie are impressing the heck out of me. And I saw it in HD. I actually was happy I did because it was popping for me. And that first time you see Lord Marshall with his helmet and it's the side of his helmet and it's his real face, it was a really nice visual. I was going with that that style, that there are some good things there if you want to find them. Yeah, money changes everything, right? We were talking last movie about how cheap the CGI looks. You give something over $100 million to play with, and all of a sudden, yeah, it looks incredible. This entire planet of Hellion Prime. I thought Iman was going to New Mecca. He's on Hellion Prime. Okay, he moved. But... <laughs> I gotta say, this is 2004. Do they play down his being Muslim on purpose? I don't think they play it down hardly at all. This entire planet is very Middle Eastern in its architecture and its flavor. You've got people coming in with the headgear. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that in the animated movie I watched, they said Hellion Prime is the actual planet name for what he refers to as New Mecca. This is his New Mecca. And so I don't think they played it down at all. It's just a very small part of this movie. Yeah, I never got the sense. I mean, in Pitch Black, the monster movie, we see him doing his prayers three times or however many times a day. I don't know. It felt like it was somewhat played down. Yes, there is the dress, so they might look like a stereotypical person from that part of the world i don't know it it felt a little bit played down to me in that pitch black i felt like that was a major part of him him being muslim and going to new mecca here it just felt a little different it has been five years he might have been the new mecca and then left he maybe wasn't going to new mecca to stay maybe he was going to new mecca to pray or for a pilgrimage and then decided to go home just saying didn't bother me at all he was there i was just happy to see keith david back coming into it this time I did not remember any ties to the previous movie at all. I remembered this one being so different that I thought the only carryover was Riddick. And this is Riddick in another adventure, a bigger adventure. So the fact that the person who put the bounty on his head, the person who brings him into this is Iman, is a nice tie for me. It makes Pitch Black feel like it's part of this universe. I'll go with that, but also including him tells me he's going to (laughs) die. He survived the last one. I was not convinced he was dead meat, especially not as quick as he does die. He's dead in the first 15 minutes. Yeah, that's what shocked me is that he dies so soon. You know, I did like that they carried this character over that at first you think, oh, he sold him out. He's put this bounty on him. No, it's just to get him to come to their planet to try to help save him. 
But do they know he's a Furian, or do they just know he's a badass? Because you've got Judy Dench there, who is the person who 30 years ago prophesied a Furian would kill Lord Marshall. She caused the death of all the Furians, and so she's talking to Iman and saying, well, we're going to need some help. Is he like, well, I know a Furian, or I know a badass who might be able to save our skins? I took it as he just knew a badass. I took it as he knew a badass and told her about him, and then she put two and two together and then said, here's who this guy really is. you got to get him here. And this is where we're really introduced to a whole bunch of things. This is where we're introduced to Judy Dench as the elemental, and she's talking about the necromongers who one is half dead. This really changes this universe for me. In Pitch Black, everyone was a human, right? They all could have come from Earth. This could be the far future where we have space travel, but we're all from the same place. Nobody was inhuman except for the monsters who killed them. Now you have people who can steal souls from bodies and people who can turn into dust clouds and glide. Yeah, this, again, I've said this, moves more into fantasy. I mean... When I first saw Judy Dench, I, I wrote down Ghost Lady. There's ghosts in this world now. And we saw these you know, the necromonger demons that are half alive, half something else. I, it's a really strange place to go, at least for me, when you try to mix kind of this medieval mythology with sci-fi. It's something that's never really worked for me. You know, yes, yeah, Star Wars, they have laser swords and this thing called the Force. I don't know. It, it just plays different than when you're seeing, I don't know, Star Wars has ghosts too. So I, I guess it all depends if it's Star Wars or not, is what I'm saying. No different, only different in your mind. <laughs> Well, the big difference also, though, Jacob, is this scene with Keith David and she and Vin Diesel. It's a giant data dump. It's how they put it across. All these things you're saying about Star Wars are true, but it's how you put it across. You mean like when Obi-Wan takes Luke to his cabin and does a big data dump? That's the first time you get it. <laughs> Honestly, though, think about it. He's talking about the Force so you can explain the magic. He's explaining magic. And he's talking about Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker. We already know who Darth Vader is at that point because we saw him earlier so you can put it together and you can see his link. But here... And we saw the Necromongers take over a planet at the start. But if you're hearing this in the theatrical cut without seeing the Furion, who even if you saw them, the Furion in the director's cut, you don't know what the hell is going on anyway. It's a big, big, big... Big bunch of information and a bunch of names and a bunch of things that are being thrown at you before you really see them or see what's going on. It doesn't work as well as it does in Star Wars because of the way it's put across. There's something about economy and simplicity. You know, the Force, it's a thing that's all around us. And you could tap into it. There's a denseness here which just stops me. I just, I don't want to go any further. I don't want to have to pull out my magic cards and start looking up hit points for the different characters. I just don't want to go there. And that's how I feel with this film versus lighter sci-fi fantasies. There's a denseness here and I think there's totally a crowd for that. There are crowds that love this kind of stuff and they want to get into all that mythology. I'm not that kind of person. I'm sitting there in this scene, and I'm on the edge of my seat, not because I'm hinging on every word or because I'm excited. I'm hinging on every word so I can make sure I can follow what the hell is going on. And I was saying to myself, okay, necromancer, like I was really trying to put it together. So later on, when the movie would build upon that, I wouldn't be left behind. I had to actively engage with the movie to make sure I could follow it. And to my credit, thank goodness, because I was able to go along with a lot more maybe than you two were later on in the movie. But I got to tell you, it was an effort. I sat up straight and like almost tilted my ear towards the screen to make sure I was following everything so I could make sure I didn't miss anything because this was a massive amount of information right now. I was able to follow it. I was taking notes. Fortunately, 
none of it matters. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> You're making me cram for the final exam, and then I get to the question, it's like two plus two equals what? Fuck you! No, that is not fair! I mean, that's what they're doing, is they're trying to make this a deeper universe and expanding all of this, but if you miss the details, it's going to reward you on future viewings, and presumably, at least at the time this movie was made, in sequels. So, I'm kind of glad that when it comes down to it, there's necromongers... They have stormtroopers who can steal your soul and wear masks so they look like they're scuba diving. And it's good guys versus bad guys. We're making it sound very complex. Because the movie does. Yes, the dialogue is very complex. But you boil it down, it's good guys versus bad guys. Or as Tui would like to say, it's bad guys versus evil guys. Yeah, I heard that too, and I agree with you. I think you could boil it down, but at this point in the movie, I didn't know that. I'm watching this for the first time. I'm taking this movie seriously. I'm paying attention. (laughs) This movie says, don't take me seriously. Look for Vin Diesel running around in his bad Rastafarian wig and enjoy his one-liners. That's what it comes down to. That's crap to me. That's not fair. That's tell a simple story then if ultimately that's what you're going to be. Don't gunk it up with all this stuff. I like simplicity. Do not have a problem with simplicity. I've recommended many films that were simple because they're enjoyable. You could follow along. They're fun. Here, I'm getting so mired down in details that ultimately do not matter. Well, maybe some action will take your mind off of it as Vin Diesel fights some anonymous people who aren't necromongers and then says... Hope you're not afraid of the dark. Are you? Yeah. What I find interesting, I'm paying attention, okay, because I want to know more about this Riddick character. I want to know what were his crimes against humanity that made him such an animal. I'm looking for that. I'm watching this, and it's interesting. We will get some Riddick vision eventually, but they never really, you know, they drop a line when he runs into Jack or the, the person Jack becomes later on about his eyes, but... That really, it was a gimmick for Pitch Black, and they kind of leave that and move on. You don't get a lot of those callbacks. It's Yeah, he has that vision, but it's not a big deal this time now. Yeah, that really took me aback. Why have Riddick had this special power? It completely is dropped. They don't even use it at all for even the climax of the movie. You guys want it both ways. Last movie, well, it's too convenient that a guy who can see in the dark is on a planet of night. (laughs) It was a mulligan. We gave it that. Fine. That's your conceit. Go with it. I'm just saying it's weird that you set up this character, and I guess now that you're trying to expand the story so large, it's like you're almost losing that character we set up. It's almost like this is a totally different character. This isn't just a bigger film, but I don't know. This almost feels like it's not related to Pitch Black. This Riddick doesn't even necessarily need to be the Riddick we saw last week. I take it like he's Superman. I mean, he's got so many powers, right? He's got the ability to get out of any lock you put him in he's a super fighter and he sees in the dark well to say he didn't use the seeing in the dark is like complaining superman didn't use his heat vision in superman 4 it's one of the tools in his arsenal it's all we know about him besides because we talked about last time we really didn't see him kick ass in the last movie against other people here we see it a lot and it's cool but the one thing we know about him is he has this cool night vision at least they could have done is had one scene where it came in handy and they did in this fight where he's fighting people who think he's a spy i think the fight is completely pointless we're about to get a much bigger fight i don't know why they couldn't have just brought the necromonger fight up a bit instead of having him kick the ass of the people who could have fought off the necromongers 
Yeah, when Imam, the, I don't know if he's the governor or mayor or president of Helion Prime, but, like, he summoned him there, and then it's like his own army turns against him. It, it is kind of weird. I just took him as, like, a cleric, like a priest, you know. He's an Imam. He's a spiritual leader of the Muslim faith. And that's why in the summary I called it his cabal. It is not the government of Helion Prime that called Riddick. It is Imam and Judy Dench. We talking about the pointless fight scene when he gets the knife out of the guy's back, the Furian who has a knife in his back? No, that's a pointful fight scene. The pointful fight scene is when he's fighting the guys who look like Naboo guards. Yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> but then, yes, the Necromongers do invade, and it is an impressive invasion. I mean, it's really cool to see. We talked about how Imam is dead, and we know it. But, God, gorgeous. The scene of Riddick with the invader ships exploding in the sky that is your money shot isn't it that's gorgeous you're absolutely right perfect word for it and it really got me interested in what was going on i do wonder arnie with this video game did they do like a did they overlay missile command to do a scene like they have here (laughs) it was a first person shooter where you were escaping from prison (laughs) okay so it's doom isn't every video game Halo, Doom. Yeah, I was just thinking Missile Command as the Helions are fighting against the invading Necromongers here, just shooting missiles up into the sky. (laughs) And this invasion scene is also our introduction to a not-CGI beautiful thing in this movie, Fandy Newton, who plays Dame Vako in this movie. Last podcast, I was talking about how I followed Vin Diesel's career. Tandy Newton, another one whose career I followed since Mission Impossible 2. I saw her, and I'm like, she's going to be a star. And God knows she went on to be in Crash and Beloved. There were a number of roles there where she was really going after it. But right around this time, I mean, eventually, a few years later, she'd be in Norbit. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you got to say. Right there. (laughs) That's it. Over. Yeah, she has some great roles. She has shown her range and here. Didn't remember or know she was in this movie when she popped in. I'm like, hey, Fanny Newton. Hey, Fanny Newton. She has presence from the moment she's on the screen here, and she milks it for all it's worth. And another actress in this role might have just gone kaput, but she brought something to it, thank goodness. I'm going to put a pin on it. She doesn't have presence. She oozes sex. Oozes it. And, ugh, love that. I think there's some scenes with she and Carl Urban where, yes, she's using sex as a tool to get what she wants from him. Yes, you can't take her eyes off her, but there's more to it than just sex appeal. It's right there. You're right. It's sex appeal in a lot of scenes when she's walking and things are moving. I'm with you there. But she actually adds some gravitas to some of this dialogue and some of this stuff that goes beyond just mere sex appeal for me. She actually does carry some weight with this role, which could have been purely sex, which she does put across. I think there's more to it, Arnie. That's my impression of it. You can have yours. If it wasn't for the dress, I wouldn't be paying as close of attention. Yes, her character does other stuff. But in the director's cut, there's this glorious scene where she's sticking her tongue in Carl Urban's mouth. Not pretending. No. Like porno kiss tongues out of mouth. It was incredible. I saw it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, God. It's for the craft. Totally. You know, it would be kind of cool, though. It was like, like a snake's tonic, almost, though, because the way it was slithering out it was amazing. But we mentioned Macbeth. Here she is. Dame Vaco is, it's not even inspired by Lady Macbeth. If she said off, off, damn spot, it couldn't be a closer aping of Shakespeare. 
And I said this before with our Star Trek Into Darkness podcast. If you're going to reference the best, you have to be one of the best. If you're David Toohey and you're going to start putting the bard in there, you're just going to look pale by comparison. It's pretty hard to miss Lady Macbeth and her performance, absolutely. But on the other hand, I didn't mind it so much. You guys have already referenced the Bible, and now we're referencing Macbeth, and it's all there, sure. But of all that kind of referencing stuff, and this one's blatant if you've read Macbeth, and most of us have in high school, if not in college as well, or seen productions of it. This one, it plays better to me, Arnie, than the whole Chosen One thing. I don't mind the scenes of her trying to motivate her husband. I don't mind it at all. I, I completely see the, where it comes from, Arnie, but it doesn't bother me. Does it bother you guys that much that she does balls to the wall, Lady Macbeth? No. Great performance. It didn't bother me at all. The whole biblical stuff, the chosen one, that bothered me. But you know what? You want to throw some Shakespeare in there? Meh, go ahead. Yeah, it works. It bothers me in that it's so overt as it takes me out. In a movie where we've all agreed we're struggling to keep up, I'm now like, wait a sec. Okay, now we have these half-dead seers who Riddick's being taken to. Are they supposed to be the witches? How Macbeth are we going here? Are we going to see ghosts? What we kind of do. Is Vako going to kill the king and then be killed himself by Riddick? Unfortunately, they put Lady Macbeth in here, but give Macbeth very little to do. So it robs her of her power, and in the end, she becomes an ineffectual mess cluttering this storyline even more because you've got this whole subplot of her in the director's cut offering to blow her husband when he has the throne and convincing her husband to kill Lord Marshall and meanwhile trying to be a good soldier he's resisting but he's power hungry too and in the end it has a minor payoff for Vako but having Dame Vako there it's expanding this cast without deepening the story. Well, isn't that the theme of this movie? The pretense of being deep and allegory with very little payoff. Of all of these things going on, that's the one subplot that I like the most. And maybe it's because of her and Carl Urban and their performances. Maybe it's because it's such a familiar story. Maybe it's because I liked the way it paid off at the end that their plan ultimately failed. That they are scheming and scheming and scheming and it ultimately fails. That is the one subplot I really liked and did not mind going back to. And I was happy to see Carl Urban again and go, hey, it's Carl Urban again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've talked about how I find this guy a be a chameleon. I'm now getting him. I'm now pegging him. I'm looking at him and I am recognizing him now. And Hey, I think he got the job because he just walked off the Lord of the Rings set and somebody just handed Tui the Lord of the Rings script. <laughs> he had an awesome mullet. Awesome mullet. Billy Ray Cyrus brand mullet, man. This thing was awesome. He had a funny story in the commentary about that haircut. He said in Lord of the Rings, he was forced by Jackson to wear a helmet throughout all the movies. And he knew that in this role, he'd be forced to wear a helmet. So he went on his own to get an interesting haircut that he thought Tui would like to show off more than the helmet. It worked. <laughs> it did. He didn't have to wear the helmet. But I think, again, this guy, he's a very good actor. Whether he's portraying Bones or Dread or here in this movie, here it's an earlier role for him. I think he's really one-dimensional. He's just muscle. He's muscle with ambition, but muscle. 
the conflict he's having with Tandy and his, his struggles, it could have been a little bigger, it could have been a little clearer, but I got what he was doing there. And I think Fandy helped him a lot with the performance in believability of the two characters. I think playing off of her and what she was doing certainly projected upon him. I didn't mind what he was doing, though. I agree with you, it's kind of one thing the whole time, especially with his glare and his gaze and that intense look thing. But I got what he was doing, I was getting enough out of it not to think, oh, yeah, yeah. He was getting enough. I also think in that outfit, he also cut an interesting figure because they were setting us up for him and Diesel to square off eventually, which never happened. But And it was kind of neat that with that armor on, that he looked every much the match for Riddick. And I thought that was a cool idea to give foes to Riddick that he would have to ultimately take down. Yeah, he definitely seemed like a nemesis, and it never happens. I mean, in that opening battle, it looks like Riddick and Vako will square off, but instead... Riddick squares off with Urgun the Strange, who has a knife in his back and is the one who actually killed Iman. And Riddick, that knife becomes his weapon. You get the whole you keep what you kill going on because he killed Urgun, so he gets his knife. And then on Crematoria, you think he's going to face off against Vako, doesn't really happen. And then at the end, you think he's going to face off against Vako, still doesn't happen. It's kind of a tease. It's teasing you for the sequel, Brock. I'm telling you, this whole movie is about the next movie. They really uh, put all their cards out there, whatever the expression is. Because, look, okay, Pitch Black, it what, made double its money? It made $50 million on a $25 million budget? It was a sleeper hit? To then turn around and put hundreds of millions of dollars in this epic space movie and hope you're going to get a third one? I mean, that's balls there. Like, you had a surprise hit, and now you're trying to do Star Wars. That's kind of crazy. But understand, I mean, the big difference that you have is the money Vin Diesel had brought in on his other projects. Don't look at what Pitch Black did. You look at what Triple X did, and that was $300 million global. Right, and Fast and Furious 1 had come out already, right? Yeah, Fast and Furious 1 came out, and that was over 200 global. So he'd made half a billion dollars on his last two big films. He was getting bigger movie after movie. So you go back to a movie that had a huge life on video. Pitch Black did good in theaters, but once Vin Diesel was a star, it did great on video. And so, yeah, you throw $120 million at it and expect half a billion back. So after he has the scene with the guy with his knife in the back... They get what you called the Witches of Macbeth scene where they figure out he's a Furian. Am I the only one who thought precogs from Minority Report? No, they're that. They're the witches. They're the biblical seers. They're completely unoriginal. But I do kind of like how it ends. Kill the Riddick. Kill the Riddick. I like it that he's the Riddick now. I don't know why. I just I kind of went with that. And I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. They're like in cocoons or something. I didn't know if they were like worms. I'm thinking, you know, Dune the whole time. They got worms in Dune. These are like in some kind of pods. Before that, we get this scene. You have to convert to be a necromonger. You'll be killed. And like everyone decides to convert because they rip the soul out of someone. Like, I don't know what I'm watching at this point. Souls are being ripped out. Like I am watching. Yes. Lord of the Rings in space or something, and now these precogs or whatever they are, I am just getting lost as I go further down this rabbit hole of what this film is. You know what it reminds me of? Another chronicle. The Chronicle of Narnia, like, hey, we're going to have some goats and some witches and some talking lions and a beaver and some mice with bows and arrows. Like, we'll just mash it all up. That's that's how I feel about this chronicle. Just mash it all up in space and we'll figure it out. I'm enjoying this because we're really getting into action. And while the story is leaving me cold and it is just a mashup of other stories that were told better elsewhere, 
I agree with you. This is a complete mishmash, but what it has going for it is, once again, the same as Pitch Black. It's star Vin Diesel, and the action here, the worst action scene in Chronicles of Riddick is better than the best action scene in Pitch Black. Everything is being used to its fullest here, whether he's kicking the ass of one necromonger or escaping an army of necromongers. Anytime Riddick is kicking ass, this film is dumb fun. It tries to be a smart film and fails, but it does succeed in giving me base adrenaline when he's running from the necromongers and that ship just explodes and you're like, what the fuck did that? And Tombs comes back up. I like these twists, these turns. And it's almost a breath of fresh air when they leave Hellion Prime because they leave all of this fucking mythology behind and we become a movie a lot more in line with Pitch Black than what we'd been watching. You're so right, Arnie, and my neck is hurting by this point because now we've gone from Lord of the Rings back to Pitch Black. Like, now we're just, like, doing a prison story. I literally do not know what this movie is doing, where it's going. I can't get these tonal shifts. Like, Tombs just shows up out of the blue. Was it Riddick's plan to get caught by him? It's so weird where this movie goes once they get to Crematoria. Yeah, to actually go to Crematoria at all, I was scratching my head. I thought we had established what the movie was going to be about. And then they do go to Crematoria, and how he gets hooked up with Tombs out of the blue again, I'm like, this guy again? The whole thing is head-scratching. But thank goodness they go! It's just one of those weird things that I have in my notes that, why are they going here? And then later on, I'm like, boy, am I happy they went. Well, in the director's cut especially... They dropped so many references to Jack. When he's going to Hellion Prime, in the director's cut, Riddick goes, I wonder if she's there. And you're supposed to wonder who she is, but if you're like us and you just watched Pitch Black and you know I'm Mom, you know she is Jack. And then when he's talking to him, Mom, they talk about Jack and how Jack felt betrayed by Riddick, that she looked up to Riddick and Riddick left her and went in hiding and how she became a prisoner. Riddick tricks Tombs into taking him to Crematoria because Imam told him Jack was on Crematoria. Much like you, Jacob, Riddick could give a fuck less about elementals and Helions and necromongers. He just wants to get to Jack. He wanted to get the bounty off his head, and now he wants to find out what happened to Jack and rescue her like he did in the last film, this time from a prison. Now, in the director's cut, I did notice that they put a scene of Jack in the beginning, because in the theatrical cut, she doesn't come until we get to Crematoria, but we do get one scene early on. And then to get to Crematoria, I noticed, and I looked it up to make sure that I wasn't making this up, the way he tricks Tombs into getting him there, he plays Tombs more in the director's cut. I thought he was captured in the theatrical cut. I kind of like how he did Br'er Rabbit with the Briar Patch, to get Tombs to capture him, as opposed to flat out just capturing him like he did in the theatrical cut. It was a good choice, and I wonder why they cut that out of the theatrical. Yeah, I disagree with the earlier shot of Jack. I understand it makes sense to show us a scene from Crematoria, so when we get there later, it isn't quite as whiplash-inducing. But instead, you're just fucked up at the beginning, wondering who the hell is this chick being put in a cage. So either way, you lose, Tui. So I prefer the 
more svelte theatrical cutting of that scene. But yes, I do like the extended scene on that ship with that. And it is extended where he's talking to Toombs' crew member about grinding her teeth and being sexy. That's not in the theatrical cut. So if Jacob's opening line confused you, <laughs> you saw the theatrical cut. <laughs> I do like that he taunts like Toombs, like noticing he got a fifth member this time after saying his mistake was only having four. Yeah. Again, he has some fun one-liners around this time. I was very tempted to replace both of you on this podcast just so I could then use in the credits, better not tell them what happened to the last crew. That was a funny line. Well, by the time we get to the recommends, uh, (laughs) I I might have appreciated that. (laughs) But what scratches my head, though, because when they get to the planet after that wonderful scene on the ship, they have this mine car that they travel on. It's an action scene for an action scene's sake. I do not understand why we have the scene and kill that one guy on the way down into the prison. And both versions, I'm wondering why this scene is here. It's completely superfluous and unneeded because we just had an action beat. I think they couldn't cut it from the theatrical cut because you'd wonder where the fifth crew member was at the bottom. You know, there's certain things you have to leave in, but I think it's just another Riddick's a badass moment. And to show... Even though he's in chains, even though it looks like he's powerless, he's still very much the one in charge. Sure. It's all conveyed. Just found it superfluous. I truthfully find all of Crematoria superfluous. It does not advance the narrative of the Chronicles of Riddick at all. Like so little of this movie does. It's a hell of a lot of fun. It's my favorite part of the movie is when they get away from this dense mythology, but we leave behind the Necromongers. We put Vako on a ship, taking away his best part, Dame Vako, leaving her on Hellion Prime, and we just have Vako on the ship. He does not come to any epiphanies on this ship. At no point on this journey does Vako change and decide he will or won't betray his lord. But, man, it is a throwback. It is an inverse. It's a prison scene. You put Riddick back in his element, a convict among convicts. It's also taking me to another movie, Alien 3 now. You have a prison planet full of these loathsome prisoners who are raping the female prisoners and all of that. Yet another aping of another sci-fi classic. Yep, I thought the exact same thing, Alien 3. We did Alien and Aliens in the last one. Now we got Alien 3. I hope we don't get to Resurrection. (laughs) I hope we do. First of all, classic, using that word loosely. And secondly, I did read some meta-knowledge afterwards that he did write a draft of Alien 3, so maybe this is some of the stuff that could cut out of his draft or thrown away. Maybe it was supposed to be a wood planet. Maybe! Who knows? (laughs) But I completely agree with you that this movie has nothing to do with the mythology. We called back Star Wars a lot. This happens a lot in Star Wars when they get away from the Star Wars mythology. This has some great fun action scenes or sequences or full movies where it doesn't really tie into the big plot but it's a hell of a lot of fun if you go along with it and this crematoria planet may be poorly named but what a great idea this is never a star wars planet was it they didn't have a planet like this in all of those movies what a great idea for a planet to have this amazingly hot sunrise that you can die in the surface yeah it's a great conceit i love it because it's just an inverse of pitch black and pitch black it was you want the light you have to stay in the light here it's you have to stay in the dark they do the same thing riddick drops the same line there's one speed mine i mean it's another direct callback but it is a race from the sun and unlike the animals 
You can't fight the sun. Although Riddick does manage to. My favorite shot in the whole movie is when he's breaking out of the prison and after the whole firefight upstairs and he's on that rope, he's dangling from that rope. The camera follows him climbing up the rope through the hole and then he stands on top and he finds out that the Necromonger ship is coming. It's like one shot and I don't know how they did it, but... I don't care. It's gorgeous. Like There's so many beautiful vista shots and so many beautiful camera angle shots and above shots, things like that. But this one, it was just Vin Diesel from like the waist up. And it just, it was so smooth and it was like fluid. And it was just a brilliant technical shot that wasn't showy, like full of CG. If there was CG here, I didn't notice it. And it was clever the way they did it. It was a really cool shot. I also thought it was really wicked cool that he wound himself up on that rope, and then he got himself out that way. Freaking cool! Just like you're like, talk about a fist-pumping moment. That was a great moment. Yeah, but I thought he was actually going to escape all the way up. I mean, he was the way he was doing those little acrobatic leg spins and things. I mean, there's a couple logic things. If he can jump to reach the rope when Tombs is dangling from it, why can't he jump to reach the rope when nobody's there? It's kind of the... Dark Knight Rises problem. In fact, I think Dark Knight Rises ripped this off with the rope. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly sure. what we're looking at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this film has just become so unfocused to me by this point. We talked about this shift in tones. Maybe this action's working for you. At this point, I just don't even know what I'm watching. There are exciting things happening. I just don't care by this point. I don't know what this film is. Is this something about the Chosen One, or is this about Riddick trying to escape a prison? Yes. Yeah, it's both, man. <laughs> it's peanut butter and chocolate. I don't know if I'd go with that combination. It's two things that don't go well together. <laughs> it is like an anthology TV series. Last week, Riddick was fighting off an invasion. This week, Riddick is in a prison. Now, Riddick's on the surface of a planet running from fire. What is funny to me, though, what I noticed in watching it the second time, is that despite being so disparate, once Riddick gets off Hellion Prime, this movie books... It's like an hour of the film, but it feels like it is so well-paced. The stuff on Hellion Prime, like you said, Brock, data dump, unfocused, too much going on. But once he gets off, even the director's cut, which is longer, I think has good pacing to it. It's got action and character beats as Riddick is reuniting with Jack. Now, Jack, this is not our same old Jack. This is a new Jack. First of all, she's got a new name, Kira, and... The old Jack apparently auditioned and didn't get the role. Oh, they made her audition after having it? Ouch. Yeah. Oh, oh, ouch. That is nasty. I know this actress. This actress was an angel. The TV show Angel, which is the Buffy the Vampire Slayer spinoff. I've had a crush on this actress for many years because of Angel. And when she showed up, I'm like, Alexa. I have seen every episode of Angel. I did not recognize her. She's okay in this. I don't know why they picked her, which is put it that way. She looked the part, and she put it across the action-wise, but in the dialogue, she was lacking for me. What they said, the reason they didn't go with the last actress and the reason they went with her was simply the ability to do the action. Oh. The last actress, Vin Diesel even was rooting for the last actress and had her get some stunt training and try to get some of that action under her belt, and she just couldn't pull off the fights as needed for this role. So... In addition to being extraordinarily hot and a fair actress, Alexa was able to kick some ass. Yeah. Or at least do splits really high in the air. It's interesting. Kira drops the line that 
she tried to get her eyes changed too, but there was no doctor. Like, again, I think I'm going to find something out about Riddick that was he born with these eyes? Is it a natural thing? I, I don't know. It doesn't go anywhere, it seems. It's just Kara tried to become more like him. That's one of the things I liked about her when she was Jack and Pitch Black. And she wasn't able to do it, and then it kind of just moves on. I like that the movie is keeping Riddick an enigma. I don't need these things spelled out. If you do, Jacob, you could find out by playing the escape from the prison video game. He gets his eyes in that, so you could find out the true story. But don't bring it up then. Then tell a more cohesive story. Stop bringing up stuff that don't matter. And no, this matters. This matters not from where did Riddick really get his eyes. This matters in that Riddick lied to Jack. It's something else Jack can perceive as Riddick betraying her. It matters in their relationship. I get that from that line. And it's a callback. It's yet another bit of dialogue cut and pasted from the pitch black script into this. But because this isn't the same Jack, I have some real trouble taking her to be that character and i never feel like these two have a history they say it but i don't feel it because these two actors feel like they just walked on the set met at craft services and then went to portray this role <laughs> is it because they have a different actress or is it because the character is a huge huge difference and i'm going to ask you that because i thought they were kind of going for the linda hamilton terminator 2 conversion and that's the same actress and you believe it because it's the same actress as well as because Linda Hamilton acted the role pretty well. But here it's a whole different actress and a whole different character. It might as well be a brand new character. Right, except I understand they need someone for Riddick to care about. And it's better that they picked a character that we'd seen in a previous movie versus, oh, Riddick, this person you really care about that you've never heard of before is in trouble and needs your help. So I'm glad that they did that. But I like Vin Diesel in action. I don't think he's the world's most gifted thespian, so I'm not getting caring from his side and from Jack's side. I'm not getting anything from this Alexa. You say you know her and like her from Angel? Yeah, she was great in Angel. I don't get great here. I don't get much here. The writing is different on Angel because it's, you know, different writers and things like that. And you know how great the writing was on Angel. But beyond that, the problem they're also having is this is supposed to be Jack and they're even calling her something else. So all links about this being the other character and Riddick caring about her are transferred almost to a brand new character who is nothing like the character we knew before, including a name. They really should have kept on calling her Jack. Calling her the Kira thing was the nail in the coffin for the entire idea. To be honest, again, I said when I watched this the first time I did not go back and watch Pitch Black, I don't think I got this was a character from there. Because of the different name and everything else, and it's just a couple dropped lines, and a lot of time it's oblique her, and I was watching the theatrical cut, which has a lot less of the references, I thought this was just made-up character from his past, and it's only watching them in close succession that I get what they're telling me, because they're not telling it to me well and in a believable way. Mm -hmm. But still... Fun action. I think she kicks some ass. I love, love, love Death by Teacup. <laughs> Damn. He then threatens to do it with, like, the sardine key. Yeah, this is a relationship that I wish they had built more in this film, in a series where I'm begging for some character development. Again, I like Jack Kira from Pitch Black. I, I do wish more was done here. Yeah, there's no doubt my favorite scenes of the movie are on Crematoria. My least favorite scene in the movie is also in the director's cut on Crematoria. Because when they finally get to the ship to escape Crematoria, the necromongers are waiting. And in the director's cut, Riddick is kind of shot. He's in a shockwave of a blast. 
And while knocked out unconscious, he's surrounded by necromongers, and the Rastafarian chick appears, and he exudes a burst of energy that takes them all out from his unconscious body. So we talked about video games before. Anyone played The Force Unleashed? He has this power (laughs) that goes like boom force power and people fly away. So in the theatrical cut, he gets hit by that gun that makes people fly away. It's kind of like a bubble gun, right? And he gets hit by the bubble and you fly backwards a few feet, but you're still alive. Riddick gets knocked out by that, and then the whole Linus Roach scene happens. Here, he gets knocked out, and then it becomes all mystical. It becomes magical. Then he has force powers, and it changes the entire character. And we talked about this earlier when we mentioned this lady who pops up in these visions. You don't need this. And they're making this guy into having magic, him having magic. He has the eyes. We all know that, but they're implants. Now he actually is magical. You mean like... In a movie that came out the year before, The Matrix, when Neo's magical all of a sudden at the end of that film and he's using his magical powers outside of The Matrix. Uh, yeah, it's just... Or like a movie that came out 20 years before <laughs> when Kyle MacLachlan had funny eyes in the weirding way. Which one is that? Dune. I mean, she touches him with a hand and leaves an imprint on him. This needed to be cut. This really needed to be cut. This is not for this movie. And... I know it's great they had this trilogy, but you know what? They didn't have a second script or a third script. This is like Lucas when he says he has 12 parts in the Star Wars saga. They're saying they have this trilogy that this is part one of. Who knows if it's ever going to be made. In this movie, it's dumb. But that said, I actually like the director's cut fight better than the theatrical cut because this is where a lot of the MPAA cuts had to come from. There was a lot of violence here. So in the theatrical cut, it's like this opera. It's a completely silent fight that is only scored. You barely hear any effects or any sounds. In the director's cut, you hear the crunching of bones, you hear the grunts of fights, you hear talking. It's a totally different impact on the viewer. When Carl Urban breaks that guy's back in the director's cut, that was a badass moment for him. That was insane. That is his most badass moment the whole time, is when he picks up the guy with his hands and pulls the WWF backbreaker move on him. Oh, unbelievable. It's a shame that character never had a name or a point. So Vako shoots him with the bubble gun in the theatrical cut and knocks him out, and that was so anticlimactic. In the director's cut, he shoots him with the bubble gun, Riddick becomes a Jedi and gets out of it, and that's anticlimactic. They just robbed us of a wonderful ending to a wonderful fight scene, and no matter what cut you get... It's so unsatisfying. What do they do to thank us? They give us more exposition and plot points with Linus Roach, who's the purifier, in the next scene. They reward us for going this far with more plot and exposition. Yes, he's a Furian, don't you know? (laughs) Wait, so two Furians lived? Apparently not all Furians are tough and manly. Now, I know this guy from Law & Order. He's Bruce Wayne's father in the first Batman prequel. I know this actor, I like this actor, but I just didn't get what was going on here with this guy. I've seen this actor before, and he's like, oh, it's that guy, but I couldn't place him in any roles. But, again, it's kind of a pointless scene. It's even longer and more pointless in the director's cut that he's a Furian, and he saved Riddick for that reason, and he's upset because he allowed himself to be manipulated truthfully. I think everyone should be upset who goes over to the Necromongers because they have that scene where the Necromongers are converting the members of Hellion Prime. And 
one person goes, we have multiple religions. We will not bow down. We are religious people. And they rip out his soul and then they go, all right, who else? And everybody bows. I'm like, no, no, this is the thing jihads are fought over. People should not be giving up their religion quite so easily, especially people who pilgrim to New Mecca. They should fight a little harder for their religion. Yeah, in 2004, I don't think they're going to do that. <laughs> and not only that, they convert them, and we find out it's a physical process in a few scenes from now. It doesn't take to everybody. <laughs> you can fight it mentally. I don't understand that either. And earlier in the movie, when Vin Diesel was in the precogs room, he was magnetically pushed down on the floor when they were reading his mind so he couldn't escape. This character, the purifier, undoes the magnetic force. And until this scene, you don't understand why he would do something that act. Now we know. So the whole time, he was looking for his chance to talk to Riddick and say, hey, you know, I'm one of you. And if they're going to convert you physically or brainwash you, it should take. It constantly comes up that people aren't buying into the religion they're supposed to be converted to. But Brock. What? He's a Furian. He's different. Really? Because Thandi Newton's also fighting the conversion, and Carl Urban's struggling to do it, but he's actually almost succeeding. And then later on, Jack does it. No, they aren't fighting the conversion. They are completely into the necromonger lifestyle, but they just are power-hungry. Being a necromonger does not make you a, a mindless slave. It just makes you devoted to their religion. It's like Scientology. I mean, they talk about how there were other Lord Marshals, too. Lord Marshals come and go. But if you undergo the conversion, you're a member of the religion. But the Furians, they're special. And that actually makes Riddick less special, doesn't it? He's no longer a badass because he's a badass. He's now a badass because he's coming from a race of badasses. Yeah, like everything in this film, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just get to the final fight. We could debate this all day. It doesn't matter. They don't care enough to come up with hard rules yeah and again in dune it ends with kyle mclaughlin fighting sting with a knife and stabbing him in the head really yeah oh spoiler alert well no that's fine i i wouldn't <laughs> see it anyway honestly but really because that's how this movie ends yeah it is isn't it i know i'm like somebody hear you say that and i realize why it's why you brought it up i'm like that's so disappointing <laughs> <laughs> Now, admittedly, Kyle MacLachlan did it on his own. He didn't have help from somebody else to stab the guy in the head. And Kyle MacLachlan stabs from the chin. Vin Diesel does it from the forehead. But yeah, same thing. In the king's chamber to become ruler of the people. It's completely overt. I'm not stretching on this one. You mentioned law and order. I feel like I need to make my case to the people. This is a beat-by-beat ripoff of Dune. Chung Chung. I haven't even seen Dune in decades, and I know this is a ripoff. I don't even think you have need to have seen Dune. You just need to know the basics, and you know this is a ripoff. All they need is a sandworm. Oh, wait, they actually had one. <laughs> oh, jeez. Kyle MacLachlan tames the sandworm. In the director's cut, Riddick tames that orange dog thing. That's he right. does, yes. <laughs> that stabbing in the head, the opportunity to stab him in the head, only comes, though, because Jack is able to stab Lord Marshall in the back. Even though, earlier in the movie, when Lord Vako tries to do that, it doesn't happen because Lord Marshall can turn around and see people coming magically. But Jack is able to get the stab in the back to wound Lord Marshall, and she dies for it. But it opens the opportunity for Riddick to get the final blow. Setting up Lord Vako not getting that opportunity. 
do they need to kill Jack there? Is that something, is that a payoff that you wanted, or is that something we needed for this movie to kill her off? Or even convert her to necromonger status to begin with? I'd never thought of it before, but now that you've said it, Jacob, I think she should have been the Furian. She should have been the heir. She should have been the one who was prophesized. Since she's not, yeah, killer. It's not the same Jack. <laughs> I have no connection to Kira. And I'm done with her. I'm glad that we won't have the same relationship done again next week. Yeah, I think her character was wasted in this film. It's a character I liked a lot because of Pitch Black. They didn't quite transfer over the, as successfully to this film. If they would have done her right, I would have been sad. But yeah, okay, just another dead female in the movie. There's like two females in the movie. <laughs> Maybe three. Hey, Judy Dench lives. Judy Dench, I forgot about Judy Dench. There's four. They killed the main woman in the last film, Fry. They killed the main one here, too. Oh, no, I'd say the main one was Dame Vaco. Oh, yeah. She's my main lady. <laughs> Only one on my mind. <laughs> but yeah, this end fight, I'm actually kind of impressed they let the old guy fight for himself, right? I mean, the Lord Marshal is not a young man. You know he's not going to be able to take on Riddick. He's got these superpowers, and God only knows where he got them. Well, because he's half alive, half something else, which makes him like the Flash. Like, he just seems to move really fast. Like, this guy is supposed to be, like, death embodied. Like, I'm thinking Sauron in Lord of the Rings and, you know, this big, evil, dark, powerful wizard or whatever. No, he just kind of moves fast. You just kind of got to guess where he's going to be to stab him. Maybe I'll reference for some of our listeners, but this reminded me completely of the video game Castlevania, when you fight Dracula at the end. <laughs> yes. It's exactly the same thing. They did it again for Super Return of the Jedi NES, but really, it's Dracula from the three Castlevania video games. And I got to tell you, after watching that scene, I'm like, man, I just want to play Castlevania now. <laughs> I don't really care what's going on in the scene. What's funny is I haven't played Castlevania since 1987, and the moment you said that, I'm like, yes. <laughs> totally. But it's a cool way to die. It does... Provide a little bit of payoff to the whole Vako wants to kill Lord Marshall. And I love the ironic twist. The person who doesn't want to rule because you keep what you kill keeps the king's kingdom. That's ironic. I don't know where they're going to go with that in a sequel, but it is a unexpected way for this movie to end. Usually you're lucky if Riddick gets out with his ass. Now he gets out with his army. But come on, he's the baddest of badasses. I've never seen him be that evil, but I'm supposed to believe that. They set that up again. We're going to use evil to fight evil, and now this evil guy has an evil army. I don't know if I'm supposed to be scared. I don't know what I'm supposed to feel when he takes the throne. What do you guys feel when he takes the throne? you feel that this is, you know, something foreboding, that this is a triumph? I mean, what do you feel at the end of this movie? Honestly, Jacob, I felt that it didn't really fit with the character. I understand that it's exactly what he doesn't want, but... Where could they go with him in that position in the future? I don't see how that helps them in their grand scope of extra movies, but maybe we'll find out, maybe we won't. I have no idea how they're going to get themselves out of that one, because the only way to get out of that position is to die. So it really was just a head-scratcher as why they left him there. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, on the one hand, I take it as a triumph, because he's a man who's never had anything, he's always been on the run, but... What's he going to do with it? What stories do you tell? The fact that this movie completely tanked made me think they would never do that. How many part ones of sagas never get the follow-up story? That's what I always thought this would be. The fact that next week 
we will actually have an answer to that question in 2004, I would have bet $10,000 against that. So, Jacob, Arnie, do you recommend The Chronicles of Riddick? Jacob. Now, we talked a lot about Star Wars, and here's the thing. I, I think this is what, as we've been talking through this film, here's my Star Wars analogy for this film to explain why this doesn't work as much as A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back. This is the prequel Star Wars. This is where we're going to sit around listening about trade routes and debates in the Senate and stuff I just don't care about, stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. That is background information that you work into the film in a better way. So we get the prime cuts of exposition that's needed to move the action forward. Here, we are so bogged down with so much information. Now, maybe if I go back and watch this a second time, I'm not going to. But maybe if I did, I, I would be able to get past all that because I know it doesn't matter. But it's, it's infuriating to me. This movie never rewards me for paying attention. And that's a bad thing. You should be rewarded for paying attention, for trying to keep all these different races and planets separate. Or else, tell a different story. By the time I get to the action, by the time I get to Crematoria, I'm just worn out. I'm exhausted. I've thought too much for a film that I didn't need to think about. And again... My main complaint from Pitch Black really carries over here. I don't get character development. This is the Chronicles of Riddick. Yes, he goes to a lot of different planets in this movie, but what do I know about him any more than what I did in the last film? Oh, there's this lame prophecy that we're getting so much of this kind of fantasy stuff. I don't really know this character any better. And you know what? I don't blame the Razzies for nominating Vin Diesel for a Razzie for his acting here. He gets these one-liners. Yeah, I chuckled at a few of them, but they seem so out of place in this film that is trying to be so biblical, so Shakespearean. And then you get your Schwarzenegger one-liners, which some were good, but it's just a weird mishmash of a film that never gels for me, that is more frustrating. I, I'm from Infuria as I watch this film more than I'm enjoying it. And so a strong not recommended for me. I want to go back to Pitch Black. I enjoyed that lighter film much more than I did trying to get through this dense slog of a film that ultimately doesn't go anywhere. Arnie. Oh, this one's hard. This one's very hard. The first time I saw the movie, I had Jacob's reaction. Very much so. Like a lot of people did. I think this put Vin Diesel on a career path of recovery after this. He'd go and make the family-friendly pacifier and then start doing those sequels. In 2006, back to Fast and Furious and start doing just that as his career. Now back for Riddick. So I completely get that disappointment. But when I came back to it this time, I expected utter shit, and I found myself not hating it as much as I'd expected I would. And I watched it twice for this review, and yeah, there's a lot of problems with the mythology of this. The basic problem can be summarized in three words, lack of focus. If I were to add a little more to it, Tui once again aspires to do things outside his reach. Last time it was all the camera work, this time... It's all the references to other literature and sci-fi and fantasy. He is known more as a writer than as a director, but I think without a director to temper his impulses, he just goes a little too far. But while this film has some flaws, there's some great action to it. Really great action. I love the fights on Crematoria. I love the vibe 
once you get off that planet, you've got an hour and 20 minutes of good. But there's 40 minutes of slogging at the beginning that you got to get through to get to the good stuff. And so I'm just right there on the fence on is this a recommender or not recommend. In the end, I will probably think back fondly on this movie. I think it's a mess, but a fun mess. But does that mean I can recommend it to you? If you're a fan of Dune, I recommend it. I don't know that many fans of Dune. So for the general audience, to the average person on the street, I can't recommend it to you, even though I find some enjoyable things in here. So i got to give it a red arrow. Well, I'm right round where you are, Arnie, but I'm going to go Green Hour. I'm going to recommend it. It's a weaker recommend. It absolutely is. There are a lot of problems with this movie, and we've discussed all of them. And as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, I watched the theatrical, and I was so curious about what I was watching, I had to see that director's cut. What was this 15 minutes that was out? And a lot of the differences I went with. And we've talked about the ones I didn't, and I don't like the biggest twist of the two. There's no need for it. But I was taken aback the entire time with how this thing looked, how the action scenes played out. Yes, it's an entire tangent from the beginning of this movie to go to Crematoria. But man, this movie works in episodes, in vignettes. There's each time, if you take them out of the grand scope of this giant movie... And you just have those little scenes. I think Arnie used the analogy of a TV show earlier today. This movie works in that way. But there's enough good here for me to still want to see more. I bet you two are not going to believe I'm going to say this, but I want to see this again. I want to watch it a third time. I haven't seen Dune. I have not read Dune. I give full props for them going this big. But... This is not a good sequel to Pitch Black. <laughs> it's a terrible sequel to Pitch Black. But on its own, I liked more than I didn't like, and I'm strangely curious. But yeah, it's flawed. So it's a weaker recommend, but I'm digging this universe. It could be very well because I do enjoy Star Wars Expanded Universe. It could very well be a thousand reasons we can all list off of why I'm going this way. But the bottom line is, I enjoyed more than I didn't. And I want to watch it more, and I want to see more, and I'm curious where they're going to go. So I'm going recommend. Wow, and I'm the fan of the series. <laughs> I know, but you're close to me. You're not too far off. I think I agree with everything you've said about this movie. The difference is, when I look at the word recommend, my interpretation of it is, somebody comes up to me in a video store who I don't know with this movie in the hand, and should I watch it? What crystallized it for me is I watched the theatrical cut. And then the next day I'm going to watch the director's cut. And Marjorie says, have I seen that one? I said, I don't think you have. And she goes, oh, should I watch it with you? And I go, no, I don't think you'll like it. <laughs> and that right there, did I recommend it? Nope. <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't recommend this to my father either. But I would certainly, if people ask me about this, I'd say, you know, it's not for everyone, but I liked it. And I think if you like science fiction and you like great action scenes, this is the one. It's a conditional recommend. A weak recommend is not like everyone should see it. It is a weaker recommend because there are things people here can enjoy. you got to keep an open mind on this one. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Green Lantern. It turns people, a lot of people off. It's that kind of movie. And there's a lot here to like, but there's definite problems. And you can tell us what you think about this movie by going to the forums. I know this movie has a big cult following. You guys can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. But if you have opinions on The Chronicles of Riddick, go to our forums. Let us know what you think because we'd love to hear what side you go on. Would you recommend this movie to somebody or not? You can find a link to our forums at nowplayingpodcast.com.
And we'll find out next week where this goes. How do you pick up from this? I'll tell you, I went and saw Fast and Furious 6 earlier this summer, and I got to see the trailer for Riddick. It's online as well. It looks like they went back to basics. It looks like they remade Pitch Black. They're back on a planet. It's Riddick being hunted by some bounty hunters and fighting some aliens. Maybe he'll use his night vision this time. It looks like it's dark. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like they're making Pitch Black 2, not Chronicles of Riddick 3. That's how the trailer makes it look. But all I know is, again, in 2009-2010, six years after Chronicles of Riddick was a failure, and when it was first being released on Blu-ray... Tui and Diesel were sticking to their guns and saying, you'll find out more about this Furia in the next film. So I'm trying to remain pretty spoiler free. I only know what the trailer showed me. I'm excited for next week, but more than excited, I'm just so damn curious. What happened to the Necromongers? If they don't pick that up, I'm going to be even more upset at this movie. (laughs) Total waste of time. You'll go back and make your red arrow deeper red. Yes. (laughs) That said, I think Riddick's been done for almost a year. It got its MPAA rating last November. Oh, that's always a good sign when it says on the shelf, right? Like your highness? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it was just waiting for its moment. Maybe they thought it was a good Halloween horror film and November, too late for horror, and so releasing it. To build up to this year's Halloween. Still going to remain optimistic, damn it. (laughs) All signs point to no, don't bother. But go ahead. (laughs) It's always good to go in as cleanly as possible. And ideally, we'll all give it a fair chance that it deserves when we review it next week. Well, we will find out about that next week on Totally Free Tuesday. And a reminder, last week we did the theatrical The World's End on Friday. And this Friday, we're continuing with Paul, the movie about the stoner alien voiced by Seth Rogen. Our last podcast in our Silver Donation series will be released. It is Attack the Block, another Nick Frost movie that is for those who support Now Playing. We rely on listener support to keep the show going, and as our thank you, we have these extra podcasts. So for those who donate $10 or more by Halloween, you get five bonus podcasts, this Simon Pegg Nick Frost retrospective, and for those who donate $25 or more, get six additional podcasts, the Psycho series. Yeah, and you can find all the details on how to support us here at Now Playing by clicking the banner at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. So, Jacob, Arnie, I think we should go now. Did not know who was fucking with Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. One of my best. If you say so. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Riddick film. I told one man where I might go. I shall trust to one man. You can hear more movie reviews at our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find our reviews of the Transformers films, Star Trek movies, the Avenger films, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Missing the party. Come on. 
While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I think we should go now. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. You following me? The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. You think I'd remember? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. But it's just a mark, and I'm just a payday. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much, much more. So throw on a fresh pair of panties. Let's get this right. You can also help Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Perhaps the breeder would do it. If somebody just asked him. Retrospective series is edited by Heath, Phil, and Arnie. Don't know about this new crew of yours. They seem a bit skittish. Probably shouldn't tell them what happened in the last crew. Now Playing is not affiliated with Universal Pictures. Pitch Black and the Riddick films are the property of Universal Pictures and no infringement is intended. Maybe you should pretend like you're talking to someone educated in the penal system. Fact. Don't pretend. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Finally found something worse than me, huh? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Can't leave. I'll say good night. So two sex references in the <laughs> Welcome back to our Riddick retrospective. I know penal is the is Yeah, that is yeah. not a sex reference. It's everything <laughs> about your penal. <laughs> you know what goes on in prison? There is plenty of sex references in prison. <laughs> Riddick and Tui? I mean, Tui had worked with Riddick and Tui. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to finish your sentence before. I'm glad you caught it. <laughs> this is straight out of the Bible. It's also straight out of Willow. <laughs> <laughs> if you say so, it's been a long time since I visited that film. It is. It's straight out of Laura Dannon, you know? You know, Jesus <laughs> took it from Lucas yes. and Ron Howard. Ron Howard's pissed. He's suing the church. <laughs> it is Imam and Judy Dench. I was, I was thinking I was thinking he's going for the character name. Just call her Judy Dench and you did. <laughs> this is never a Star Wars planet, was it? He didn't have a planet like this in all of those movies. What a great idea for a planet to have this amazingly hot sunrise that you can die in the surface. No, but they did have it in a Tim Zahn novel, which is why Lando had an entire colony on the back of four AT-ATs. Ah, no, I don't want to get an expanded universe. I told you I don't like that stuff. <laughs> Stop. 
Uh, really quick, which one is that? It wasn't it Lando's <laughs> colony in uh, like Dark Force Rising? I don't remember. Where he had the Imperial walkers that would keep it in the temperate zone of the planet because if it got in the sun, they'd all burn up. I read the up. book three times. I don't remember that. <laughs> okay, I'll take your word for it. It's obviously. Well, there's your blooper for our listeners. To honestly, you know, for who cares? You know, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you're gonna say Star Wars never did well, it. Well, Star Wars didn't do it in the movies. That's why my point was the movies. I mean, obviously, right. but he could have done it. There's so many books. I'm sure they covered it somewhere. Uh, anyway. Carl Urban here defeats Riddick in the theatrical cut with... Can we call him Vaco? Yeah, we can call him Vaco. <laughs> so so McCoy shoots him with this bubble gun, and it's so anticlimactic in the theatrical cut. Can we call him Vaco? I mean, now that, that, that doesn't okay. play. Okay. So, I mean, so, so Vaco... The movie about the stoner alien, voiced by Seth Rogen. 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 Voiced by Seth Rogen. 